know, it's my life savings and I tend to look at people in a very binary manner as far as am I willing to bet my life savings on you, yes or no, because that's exactly what I'm doing. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know, to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Hey, welcome everyone. It's Ed Epley once again with another opportunity for you to listen and learn from experts in the field of management and leadership to help you build a more sustainable business. Today we have a gentleman that I've known for uh, well over 10 years, and I put down three adjectives to describe him. He's flexible, he's patient, he's extremely creative, and then it occurred to me if there was ever going to be a James Bond of leaders this is him. This is the James Bond of leaders. And his name is Kirk Cordell. Kirk is in Shearville, Indiana. That's in very extreme northwest corner just outside of Chicago. And Kirk, welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. It's such a privilege to have you on with us. Ed, it's an honor to be here and great to see you again. Gosh, I sound good on paper, or maybe I should have you as my publicist. I mean, that really sounds nice. So thank you for that introduction. I hope I can live up to some level of that. You will live up to it and then some. Folks listening, if you ever want an example of what cool under pressure looks like, that's what Kirk brings to the table. And he's been under extreme pressure at a number of different times since I've known him. But before we get into some of your experiences as a manager and leader, in your LinkedIn profile, there's Hillsdale College. And that's quite a special place. So why Hillsdale and how big of an impact did that university experience have on you? Well, I would say if you look at both schools between Hillsdale and Notre Dame, I picked schools that actually, I think, take a stand on issues and stand for something. And that was really attractive to me. I grew up in a rather, I would call it a conservative household. My father was a ex-West Point graduate and, you know, class of 53. Buzz Aldrin was a squad leader, just a great group of really humble and really proven men. Hillsdale attracted me from the standpoint that they don't take any government aid and they really don't have anybody tell them what to do. It's very much about freedom, liberty, independence, the dignity of the individual, and to really you know, I think celebrate what this country has become and I think promote a liberal arts education, which Mm -hmm. certainly helped me. I mean, I was exposed to philosophy in my freshman core and, you know, that sparked an interest and uh, I wound up going overseas studying philosophy at Oxford through Hillsdale. And it's something that I probably would not or may not have been exposed to otherwise. And that certainly helped me in my professional career as far as I would say, casing problems, developing out-of-the-box solutions, just Mm -hmm. framing things differently and being able to come up with solutions that may not have been traditional solutions. Well, you're one of two executives that I know and highly respect that are graduates of Hillsdale. And I think both of you exemplify that kind of ability to reframe and rethink or bring different approaches to situations. So whatever it's done for you, it seems like it's worked. I'll tell you that. (laughs) How did you get into the automotive world? Was it just your love of cars? Is that what got you into it? It's my passion. Yeah. And isn't it awesome to be able to combine a passion with a profession? 
Yeah. So, you know, I was grew up in South Bend, Indiana area, Mishawaka, Indiana, and it was really a third grade field trip to the local history museum, Century Center, and they had an exhibit on industrial design with a gentleman named Raymond Lowy, and Raymond Lowy used to be the designer for Studebaker Corporation in the 50s and 60s, and he did a uh, car for them called the Avanti. It was similar yes. to their Mustang or Corvette. Yes. And I absolutely was drawn to that car. And lo and behold, they were still in business making, you know, a couple hundred cars a year. And the controller for Avanti Motor Corporation lived down the street from my parents. So I used to just spend hours in the factory watching these cars be hand-built. And it, that was what really sparked the interest and then at the age of 16, went to work in a local car dealership. You know, I washed cars. I drove the parts truck. And, you know, this was before cell phones and GPS. <laughs> it was tough work. <laughs> it also sold some cars. And then when I was at Hillsdale, one of my, you know, on the student work program, I washed cars. So I washed the college's fleet of cars. And there were all these cars from Al Sarah Chevrolet in Grand Blake, Michigan. And so I got to meet. Al and Joe Sarah, when they came to campus and went to work for them after graduating from Hillsdale. I didn't understand that. <clears throat> that's the connection to Sarah. Okay. Yeah. That, 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 a, a tumbler just fell into place. Well then, um, is that when you got your first exposure to multiple, multiple luxury brands was working at Sarah? No, he was really, um, General Motors focused. So okay. he was one of the largest Chevy dealers in the nation and uh, had a number of General Motors franchises at that time. So how did you get to BMW? That's a great story. So I go back to Notre Dame, do my MBA, and uh, I'm sitting around, you know, GM and Ford recruited on campus. Uh, I was also looking at Wall Street, and um, I think this is really where mentors come into play. And a couple of good mentors of mine said, you love cars, why don't you stick with something that you love? It'll probably make a world of difference for you. And so I sat back and I thought, you know, if I go to work at GM or Ford and I get stuck on the Cavalier or the Escort program, I'm really not going to be too enthused about it. Right. So I took a look, took a step back. I thought BMW had a great brand, I think exciting products. And at that point in time, BMW had made a big commitment to the U.S. market. Correct. They had started up Spartanburg, South Carolina. They had the BMW of North America. Uh, out in New Jersey, and they also had also started uh, Design Works out in L.A. as far as the uh, design firm. So the United States is one of the most vertically integrated markets that BMW has, and then at that time they were also starting up a financial services division, and so I sent a cold cover letter off to BMW one day and uh, got a call from a guy with a German accent named Stefan Krause. <laughs> and... So I didn't know at first. I told a few people I'd sent this cover letter off, and I didn't know at first if it was, you know, my buddy playing a joke on me or if this was actually something real. And uh, so was, I flew. Was that was that a real German accent, or was that somebody's <laughs> interpretation of one? Okay, keep going. And uh, so flew out to New Jersey for an interview and and got hired from there. So it was, you know, me taking a look at what my passion was and going, who do I think has a very strong brand, is making a large commitment to the market, and is growing as well. So that, that uh, another tumbler fell into place. Okay, it, you know, it's, it's funny, as many conversations as you and I have had, and 
and some of them fairly personal. So, some of these things I've, I'm, I'm hearing for the first time, so it's 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 fun for me to see the the rest of the picture. Um, you uh, did you always have your head in the uh, in the space of wanting to do you know international work, or did BMW really hold that up? And that was the first time you thought about it. I would say I was the accidental international business person. Okay. Um, you know, I was a, I like to joke being, you know, I like to say that I'm an Amish kid from Mishawaka, Indiana. Um, but, uh, you know, when I was at Hillsdale, I had a chance to go study overseas at Oxford University. And I think that started to open up uh, a little mm-hmm. bit of wanderlust. Mm-hmm. When I was younger, uh, my family had relocated to southwest Georgia and then moved around a little bit. And I think that kind of opened me up as far as being able to integrate into different areas and, and cultures. Um, but it was really Johan Felk, and I think you remember Johan. Yeah. So I met him when he came to the U.S. a few times. And, you know, the first time I met him, he, he, you know, he's a very intimidating figure. He's probably 6'3", six, 6'4", six, bald, the goatee. He was pretty buff physically and you know, I, I think I sweat through my shirt the first time I met him. I was just so nervous, you know. <laughs> he was a global CFO for BMW Financial Services. This is a big deal. And uh, Johan made me the offer. He said, listen, um, I'd be willing to bring you over and work in my group in Munich for three to six months. He goes, I can't promise you anything after that, but I think it would be really good for you. And either very naively or very courageously, I said yes. And Probably I, some of both. I, I think so. Yeah, and some I, of both. And I got a one-way ticket to uh, Munich, Germany. Uh, but the one thing I'd realized is that people who had made it to the top of this industry almost universally had had international work experience, had gotten an international assignment, and they're not easy to come by. It's a pretty big commitment on the behalf of the organization to take somebody and move them overseas and... and um, you know, it's a it's a bit of a gamble too. So I showed up in Munich without able, you know, without being able to read street signs or anything else, and got thrown into the mix. Which I would say at that time, BMW was not only a German company but a very Bavarian company. So, um, you know, I started German classes. I, I would do two grammar classes during the week before work, and then an intense vocabulary class on the weekends. So. I could build my vocabulary up to 600 words and start conversing. And then at a certain point, Johan looked at me and everybody else in the room during a meeting and said, we're switching to German. You either sink or swim. And, and <laughs> that was kind of it. So. I love that. That's a, a, a digital opportunity. <laughs> yeah. So, um, But it was, um, you know, what a wonderful experience. And, you know, I had the opportunity to become uh the English speech and presentation writer for the number two uh, person in BMW, who was Gunter Lorenz. So he was the the CFO of everything and Johan's boss. And I'd run into them and it overheard a conversation where Mr. Lorenz had to go to England. At that time, BMW owned Rover and they had to make a presentation to the Rover executives. And he really wasn't comfortable with the materials he was receiving and he wasn't all that comfortable with his English, and I get that in the second language, it can be really tough. So I spent a weekend developing a speech and a presentation that I then walked in on Monday to Johan's office and said, I overheard this conversation and, you know, put some things together. And if 
it can be of any use to Mr. Lorenz, you know, please pass it along. And from that, you know, I gained access to the 22nd floor of the BMW headquarters and, you know, used to fly around on the uh, BMW uh, plane with Mr. Lorenz, getting him briefed for these speeches and presentations. And so you're on these planes, you're with a board member, there are other board members there, and you really start to understand how the company works and functions and how things actually get done. So, you know, uh, people listening that are part of large organizations and you you hear the term politics, um, there's multiple kinds of politics. There's politics of choosing your words before you speak, but then there's the politics of navigating the hallways and the floors of the organizations of which you're a part. Um, Did that come intuitively to you or were there people that really coached you on how to navigate the hallways and the, and the multiple floors and, and, and even locations of, of a company like BMW? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you have to find your own way, but also, you know, be alert and listen to cues you were hearing. And, and you know, Johan was certainly a good um, mentor, great mentor throughout my career uh, as far as you know, you do it this way or you do it that way and pulling me aside and, and actually taking an interest in me enough to say, um, you're screwing up here, or you need to do it this way. And that's really what you need is somebody that is higher up, more accomplished, that takes an interest in you and helps guide you along the way. Uh, were, were most of your mentors within the company or did you have a few that you had really come to rely on by this point outside the organization? Well, I would say with navigating BMW, it was certainly within BMW. You know, if I were to start from the beginning, you know, my 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 father, my one of my brothers, um, Joe Sarah was certainly a mentor um, at the Sarah organization, and then Johan was a big mentor within BMW. Okay, okay. Um, let Let's talk more specifically about leading and managing. Um, how different is it leading people who aren't from your country, you're, you're from where you're from? You've you've done that a lot in your career before you return to, to the States. What's what's that like and how much different is it than uh, leading people who are all from the same country? Wow. Um, well, it's a little bit like the Wizard of Oz. You have to have a you have to have a heart and mm-hmm. being able to connect with people is is a big deal. Um, and that becomes tough because, you know, I think is, you know, if you and I were talking, and I knew you were from Columbus, Ohio, I'd probably bring up something about Ohio State football. Oh, did you see the game last, you know, right. last weekend? It was disappointing or, or exciting. Right. Um, we may have watched the same shows growing up. We may have consumed the same media as far as popular culture, songs, right. movies. In, in, in different parts of the world, you do not have that ability to make those connections like that. So um, one is establishing trust with people and they have to know that they can trust you because if they're going to put their career on the line with you and believe in you, they have to trust you. So establishing that trust, I think, is is number one and that's universal wherever you go. And especially in China, that was uh, really a, you know, you had to break a lot of bread with people and and spend a lot of time with them outside of a business environment so that they got to know you as a person and could trust you more. Was the time outside of the office um, something that was acceptable to them? Was that, did did they feel um, 
I'm just curious about whether work-life balance was a, 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 a concern for them, where they wouldn't even want to give you that time away from work, or was that it, was that an honor to spend time with you in, in their culture? Um, I think it was a little bit different between Germany and China. So those, you know, that's what my experience is based on. In in Germany, it was a little bit more sports related, going and playing tennis after work. It was, you know, I think. You know, the German culture, you know, people can be a little bit more like coconuts where they've got a hard exterior but soft inside. And um, you've, you've got to be able to get past that. And it's it's a much more formal environment than what you would have here in the States or something like that. But right. getting to know them outside of that is a, is a big deal. Um, in China, uh, there were a lot more opportunities for dinners and lunches outside of the office, but people, I think, were just genuinely curious and wanted to get to know you, but also, you know, wanted to know if they could trust you or not. It, it, uh, okay, so so you you spent that that time at BMW, and then what was it, uh, 2015, where you uh, then went on the other side of the table to become a dealer principal? Am I saying yes. that right? Well, yeah. I've, like to say, I had a reverse midlife crisis. I, I uh, <laughs> punched out of corporate. I got married and moved to the suburbs of Chicago. So it was probably opposite of the normal midlife crisis. But uh, yeah, it's a little bit like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz says: "There's no place like home." And and uh, I, I had a wonderful experience. I spent 11 years overseas with BMW. I've gotten to visit 46 different countries. It was just an awesome experience. Um, that last run was nine straight years overseas, and I just wanted to come home. And, and um, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I'd risen to a level in BMW where I was never going to get back to the Midwest. It was either going to be East Coast for a stint and then overseas again somewhere or something else. Um, but I think a couple things converged. Um, you know, I think um, the opportunity to go out on my own as a business person, as an owner, um, was something I had heard from a couple mentors outside of BMW, which was, you know, they would consider BMW the German GE. You're going to get a great um, education there. You're going to be able to develop good business acumen. Um, But at a certain point, you know, go out and do it on your own. And uh, it was interesting because from two different people. I had heard an age of 45, and that's exactly how old I was when I stepped out. Um, so I always kept that in the back of my mind. Um, and on the other side, it was about you know maintaining good relationships with people throughout your career and throughout your time. Um, the uh, you know Sarah family had always stayed in touch with them, and you know out of the blue one day. I received a call from Joe Sarah, um, and he basically asked me if I was still seeing the girl in Chicago, which is a whole nother story, but, you know, reunited with a classmate from Notre Dame, and that I still have my cottage in, in Michigan, and what did I think about going in together on a BMW dealership outside of Chicago? So it just, you know, whether you believe in God, karma, fate, like, it, it, it really lined up quite nicely as far as getting back to near the area where I grew up, close to friends that I'd known from high school, and being able to put things together on a personal level um, with Wendy and, and marrying her. 
Well, I, I, I'm thinking of this, the, the, the scope of change that that represented. And for our audience, let's put this in perspective. Kirk goes from being the CEO of BMW Financial Services in China, the largest, fastest growing marketplace for BMW finance. And I think the largest individual contributor of profits to the, to the organization at that time. And, 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 and as you've said, flying in corporate jets with the, the board members and so forth. And now you're in a business where you have to worry about whether the people show up to work <laughs> to twist wrenches and, and uh, yeah. to sell cars. So that's a big change. Um, it's, it's, it's not quite the same kind of work, is it? It, uh, I would, I would call it blue collar investment banking. That's probably the best <laughs> way I can uh, describe it because the hours are long, um, and and the work is demanding. But it's certainly not as I would say it's not as glamorous as you know uh, an international career. But I have to say I really enjoy it from the perspective of you know working with teams, uh, being close to the product. And uh, I think China gave me the confidence to step out on my own as a, you know, you've, you've got your life savings on the line and being able to put that on the line and believe in yourself. Yeah. And uh, I was also thinking you get to see much more quickly the consequences of whatever you do in the role you're in today compared to where you were, I would think. Yeah. For better or worse. It, yeah. You know. It can be a lot going into your bank account or it can be nothing. So. What's been the biggest surprise if, if, if now that you've got six plus years doing this uh, as a dealer principal? What what did you think it was going to be like versus what you've experienced to, to this point? That's a great question. Um, it certainly is much more like a speedboat than an oil tanker, which mm-hmm. is you know what BMW was. And that's a fun part. You can turn the dials and see pretty quickly what works and what doesn't work. I think the biggest um, surprise to me was how much um, retail had changed in that 20 years that I had been on the corporate side. You know, we didn't have tools like, you know, we didn't have a CRM system. We didn't have V-Auto. We didn't yeah. have um, digital retailing. Um, there, there was a tremendous amount of learning that had to take place for me as far as the principles were the same, but the, the tools in the processes uh, had changed during that point of time. You were always a patient uh, leader when it came to firing. I, I, I think even hiring, but I definitely felt like you were, you always gave people the benefit of the doubt one, two, three times in my, my, the way I remember you operating with your teams. Um, are you as patient in the role you're in today or uh, have you moved, do you move quicker now on decisions regarding people? I, I do move faster, I believe, and I think it's a couple things. Number one, um, you know, it's my my life savings, and I tend to look at people in a very binary manner as far as am I willing to bet my life savings on you, yes or no, because that's exactly what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, becomes a very objective lens to look through. Um, and I think also as you mature and grow older, a little bit of that gut reaction as far as pattern recognition. I've seen this before, mm-hmm. um, and I think you have a little bit more intuition than you may have had uh, at a different age. Um, 
I get credited oftentimes for being smarter than I am because simply <laughs> I've seen it before. I, I, right. I, I, I can, I can say, you know, well, if this is happening, this, this is other two or three things are probably happening as well. Correct. And people say, how do you know that? And there's just some recognition of patterns that become pretty evident. And as you gain that experience, um, you, you added, uh, uh, Jaguar, correct. To your portfolio. Jaguar Land Rover, we did, so about two and a half years ago. So what was that like dealing with them compared to BMW? Are they better, worse, or just different? Well, it's interesting because the global CEO for Jaguar Land Rover over the past 10 years is an ex-BMW executive. (laughs) So Ralph Spieth was one of BMW's best product guys, worked for Lieutenant for Wolfgang Reitzler, who was the head of product development at BMW. So... I think that's why the product looks so sexy and is so sexy. He certainly was able to improve quality over the time that he was there. It was a compliment to us because Jaguar Land Rover approached us about opening this facility and representing the brands. You know, I think the brands are very different than BMW. While they're still luxury, there's different points. Range Rover is really about off-road capability, but also ultra luxury at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit different. Jaguar, you know, the F-Type is probably the sexiest it's modern sports cool. car around. <laughs> it's pretty cool. So the brands, you know, I thought it was a nice fit because I didn't feel like they were a direct competitor to BMW. Yeah. They are a smaller company with fewer resources. So I think, you know, that certainly is a challenge for them. Okay. You know, it brings back some memories of having been over there and gone through the rover facilities when I was younger and being the speech writer. But it's just, you know, I wouldn't say it, it's just they are different brands. So what are you driving? I think that's what people are listening are going to want to know. So what is in Kirk's garage? <laughs> well, right now, and, and every day it can be different, but a BMW X5 M50, and it's an individual color called Amatrin, which is kind of a burgundy, really pretty vehicle. You know, we're very fortunate that BMW has a major manufacturing facility in South Carolina. Yes. And it's a nice tie into the local area, too, because there are two Indiana steel mills that supply the factory. So there's a little Indiana steel in everything that we we're driving around. Nothing wrong with that. No. One of the things we promise our listeners is if they join us and spend some time, they're going to come away with one or maybe two ideas about what they can do to run a more sustainable and successful company. So if you were to say, what's one thing that you would recommend to anybody, regardless of the kind of business they're operating, so that it would be more successful, more sustainable? What's that concept or idea for you, Kirk? Well, based on my experience, if you're running a large organization, it's certainly about the strategy. It's about the balance scorecard and getting everybody in the that organization to pull in the same direction. And on a smaller basis, say, for instance, our dealerships, It's really about people, product, and processes. And the people, it goes back to the old Jim Collins, get the right people on the bus, Mm -hmm. get the wrong people off, but also get people in the right seats. The product, we certainly represent some of the best luxury products around, but the product is also the service that you're delivering. Correct. And that's very dependent on the processes that you have, and it has to be process-oriented. I think the commonality out of those two is that an organization can only effectively concentrate or focus on three to five items at a time. Boy, that's the truth. And if you can focus on those three to five, 
you might actually make some progress, but you also get your organization aligned behind those three to five things, and people can start to prioritize. We all have more things that we can do in a day, right? And it comes down to the prioritization. And if it aligns with those three to five items that are a priority, then I need to make them a priority. And if they don't, they're probably going to be a lower priority. And I think that helps an organization, whether large or small. (laughs) I appreciate you providing that clarity of three to five things and what they mean if we can get those accomplished or isolated. You're always a resource of good thinking, great ideas, and frankly, just a fun guy to spend time with. I'm sorry we haven't spent much in the last 12 to 18 months, but I know there's been a lot on your plate. Yeah. So thank you once again for being such a good resource for our audience, Kirk. If they wanted to reach out and know more or learn more from you, what's the best way for them to do that? My email address is simply kirkcordill at gmail.com. Just drop me a line. I actually do read my emails and, and try to respond to them. And Kirk Cordell, that's all one word? Yes. Okay, and we'll put that in our show notes. And I wouldn't be surprised if you heard from some folks, Kirk. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Ed Epley Experience. Well, it's been an honor. Thank you for having me. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's the Epley, E-P-P-L-E-Y, group.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills.